This is an encore presentation of Moment of Truth with David Moses. Scano Seguani, Bonjour Kwekwe Tansi, and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. I'd like to welcome my guest to the show today, John Moses. He is a supervisor of repatriation at the Canadian Museum of History in Ottawa. And if you're wondering if that name sounds familiar, if there's any connection, I have to say yes, I have to concede. Uh, John is a relative, and uh, we've happened to meet, we've met a couple of times. I actually, uh, we'll get into more about the family connection because we're going to talk about his dad in a little bit. Um, I, I want to bring that into it because that's how I uh, first uh, got a, had a picture of my grandfather from uh, from his, his dad, Russ. Uh, he uh, is actually... Also a Canadian Armed Forces veteran, and he was awarded the Special Service Medal for operations at CFS Alert in Ellesmere Island at Nunavut. And uh, he actually uh, left the museum for a while and following a hiatus to work on Indigenous culture policy and modern treaty implementation at the Department of Canadian Heritage. John, uh, welcome to the show, first of all. Well, Scano, thanks very much. Glad to be here. It's it's a pleasure, and it's so nice to uh, to you know we don't get a chance to to talk or or see each other much, so it's nice to be able to connect on something at least uh, in a professional area like this. Yes, very much so. Now you've had quite a career there at the uh, the the museum. Um, yeah, I've been fortunate. I've had a number of very interesting jobs here. I um, started out actually as an artifact conservator doing the the hands-on repair and restoration work on artifacts. And then as different opportunities became available, I got more and more involved in research and uh, curatorial work. And currently I'm working as the repatriation supervisor here at the Canadian Museum of History in Gatineau. And, you know, I remember, in fact, that's how I first uh, making this family connection when I was working in Ottawa at, at the Aboriginal People's Television Network as their Ottawa correspondent. Um, there was a repatriation going on at the museum at that time. And we, uh, we that's how we first got of, sort of connected. You weren't there, I remember, when uh, when me and the crew went over there. Uh, but uh, you were off somewhere. But that had to do, I think, with some repatriation of some bones, I think, from the Arctic or something. Well, certainly we've been um, we've been doing repatriation at the Canadian Museum of History and its its predecessors going back to the the days of the National Museum of Man in the um, in the 1970s, starting with the repatriation of potlatch materials back to the Quagulf communities of Cape Mudge and Alert Bay. Um, but uh, yeah, currently I, I've been doing the the current work right now with the, the repatriation unit here at the museum since November of 2016. 17, I guess it is. I'd been uh, been away at the Department of Canadian Heritage within their Aboriginal Affairs branch for a number of years doing policy. So I had sort of been within the museum field and then left to do policy work, and now I'm back within the museum field. So I guess all in all, I've probably spent... Uh, in various capacities, my time here at the museum actually goes back to, I'm dating myself here, but it actually goes back to June of 1988, so it's been a while. Wow. Um, so, John, the other thing I'm wondering about, what first attracted you to either museum work or, or repatriation? Well, I guess the, um, I had always, well, as part of the larger story, I guess, there had been a military service tradition within the family, as you well know. My Absolutely, own father, yeah. Russ Moses, was a, 
a residential school survivor as well as a naval veteran of the Korean War, and he subsequently spent 10 years with the Royal Canadian Air Force as well. And um, I had had uh, a keen interest to find out what the military life was all about myself. So for a couple of years between high school and going back to college and university, I served for five years myself as a communicator research operator or a 291er with the Canadian forces with trades training at CFB Kingston and then later operational postings to CFS Leitrim and CFS Alert. And at the uh, by the end of my five-year contract, I decided for, you know, various reasons I wasn't, um, wasn't going to be pursuing a career in the military, but I had always had a strong interest in museums and heritage work. So it's at that point that I took my honorable release and um, began, uh, you know, completing various academic credentials within the the museum and heritage related disciplines. So I've, um, like I said previously, I've uh, been involved in museums and heritage work primarily here at the Canadian Museum of History for a number of years now. Well, uh, you mentioned your dad. Let's let's, if you don't mind, just uh, talking about him for a, a little bit. Uh, he yeah. he did have uh, quite the career in the Navy. I remember, and and if I'm not mistaken, he's actually featured in some of the Canadian military uh, uh, paraphernalia. I know I've seen pictures of him uh, in there that that they use for publication purposes and and to try and recruit. Yes, well, if you go onto the internet, you can, you know, do a search, I, I guess just a Google search on Russ Moses on a couple of the a couple of the sites, whether it's the Department of National Defense or the Department of Veterans Affairs and come across various references to him. But um, yeah, he was, uh, as I say, he was a residential school lad to begin with. Mm-hmm. He and uh, a younger sister and an older brother were at the Mush Hall at the Mohawk Institute in Brantford for five years, spanning 1942 until 1947, under very severe wartime conditions. And then um, following that, he joined the Royal Canadian Navy in 1950, and he was in the in the RCN from 1950 to 55, including uh, his Korean War service, which ironically enough was performed in HMCS Iroquois, one of uh, the Canadian Navy's tribal class destroyers of that era. And then from 55 to 65, he served as a safety equipment technician with the Royal Canadian Air Force. And uh, he he left the military altogether in 1965 to pursue civilian civilian employment with the then Indian Affairs Branch of the Department of Citizenship and Immigration here in Ottawa. So up until the time he retired in the late 1980s, he worked for a variety of government departments, including the Department of Indian Affairs and also the Public Service Commission. And uh, he actually worked with the Solicitor General of Canada at one point as well. Uh, if I'm not sorry, uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just saying. So yes, he had quite a quite a varied career, including both his time in two branches of the military, and then also working on a number of very interesting uh, interesting files within government. For example, being the Deputy Commissioner General of the Indians of Canada Pavilion at Expo sixty seven in in Montreal, which was a real. A real watershed in indigenous self-representation before national and international audiences of world's fairgoers. So that was quite a quite a an achievement and an experience in its own right. I think. 
Yeah, did he work with Jean Chrétien at one point while while in Indian affairs? Yes, he was an advisor to Chrétien in the well during I guess nineteen sixty nine through nineteen seventy. Roughly, he was brought on board as an advisor in the immediate aftermath of the uh, disastrous reception of the white paper policy proposal to. Mm dismantle the Department of Indian Affairs and to get rid of the, the Indian Act and any any notion of um, uh, Aboriginal and treaty rights as a legal concept in Canadian Canadian law. That whole proposal was, was rapidly shouted down uh, within weeks, if not days, of its, of its release in June of 1969, I believe it was. And there was um, sort of a remedial effort made to backtrack and he was one of a team of advisors that was uh, brought on board to help chart out next steps moving forward and uh, these included amongst other things um, permanent funding for the national indigenous organizations of the day Um, for example the national indian brotherhood which still exists today of course is the uh, assembly of first nations but yeah so he had worked uh, quite uh, closely with uh, Jean Chrétien during Chrétien's tenure as minister of indian and northern affairs back in the late 60s early 70s was there also a connection uh, with radio did he work at cbc or something like that oh yes well this was actually goes back to the time when he was still officially part of the royal canadian air force but he was able to get the the necessary permissions through the air force and through his commanding officer to work on a part-time basis with the um, the Northern Service of CBC Radio, which actually still exists today as uh, unreserved. So, uh, yeah, he was, in addition to everything else, I guess you would say he was a pioneer Indigenous broadcaster as well. <laughs> it's, it's such a small world, you know, when I think of it and you start mentioning about the Navy. My brother joined the Navy, uh, and of course I work in radio. It's, uh, it's all in the family. <laughs> oh, yes, very good, very good. Um, so thank you for sharing that. I appreciate you, you doing mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. Now, the other thing I see that, that you ha- have been involved with, um, going back to uh, some of the things of your interest and, and that you've researched, is uh, working with the British Museum and the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of the American Indian. Um, did you work at all with uh, Tim Johnson? I knew Tim. He was, I believe, if he was not on the board of trustees or the board of directors he was um uh, certainly around NMAI I, w- I was on staff at the National Museum of the American Indian from 1994 until 1996 when it was still based in New York City it was just at that point that it was just shortly after the administration of the Museum of the American Indian had been taken in under the wing of the Smithsonian Institution family of museums so I was uh, living and working uh, in New York City from 1994 to 1996 as an artifact conservator at that point. We were getting everything prepared for the the big move from the New York City venue to the new facility on the Mall in Washington, D.C. So it was a very busy time. But yes, Tim Johnson was one of the... Uh, was one of the other uh, Native uh, advisors I would see from time to time during that time period. And uh, I'm not sure what his connection still is today, but uh, he he went on to um, staff work at the NMAI in a fairly senior position as well uh, shortly after that. He absolutely did. And, uh, you know, they ended up creating, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Rumble, 
the film as well as Rumble, the uh, the concert that I believe first took place at the Smithsonian. And, okay, and uh, that is uh, that very much influenced, um, uh, showed the influence of indigenous songwriters and, and indigenous musicians. Uh, right, uh, and and uh, we uh, of course uh, played uh, the first song we ever played on the air here was uh, Link Ray's Rumble, uh, the song oh, itself. Good, good. So uh, there's a there's a connection there. That's why I was wondering if you. Uh, ah, interesting. You, yeah, it was. It's a again small world. Yes, when they did Tim, of course, is another. He's a Six Nations band <laughs> member himself, so that's the. And we're actually I'm related to him too on my mother's side of the family, <laughs> because his father Jack Johnson and my mother Helen Montour were first cousins. So right, yeah, it's a small yeah. world. Uh, yeah, we go back to Six Nations, and, and you know, I didn't I didn't mention this off the top of the show, but uh, your heritage is of Lenape or Delaware and the Upper Mohawk uh, from Six Nations, as, as you have That's correct. My, both my folks were born and raised at uh, Six Nations, and uh, it's not well known, but in addition to you know each of the Six Nations themselves, there's also a, a small Delaware band at, uh, at, in the community as well, and on my mother's side of the family, uh, well, her maiden name is Mentour, so my father was Russ Moses, and my mother is Helen Mentour, so... Yeah, you know, uh, I would always, when I'm ever at a meeting uh, of some sort on Six Nations, they always mentioned, you know, they mentioned go through the Six Nations, and I'd say, and Delaware, you know, I'd always. Yes, <laughs> yeah, sort of. Uh, Just give them a little reminder there. That's it. That's it. Just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. My guest is John Moses. He's the supervisor of repatriation at the Canadian Museum of History in Ottawa. Uh, we've been speaking to him primarily about uh, Canadian Armed Forces, his dad's uh, involvement uh, with the Canadian Armed Forces, as well as his own. Uh, John, I'd like to move on to talk a little bit about what you do there now, and, and also, um, uh, you know, some of the some of the exhibitions and things that are going on at the exhibit at the uh, museum. Well, certainly, right now, the you know the work that I'm doing it is as of the um, as supervisor of the repatriation function here at the museum so it's uh, basically carrying out the the museum's implementing the museum's repatriation program consistent with the museum's repatriation policy and with our federal enabling legislation under the museums act um in terms of our current exhibitions it's um, well just over the, the the space of the you know the past several years i guess going back to 2012 we, you know we we had been looking at the the bicentennial of the war of 1812 mm-hmm. and i should explain that the canadian museum of history corporation also includes the canadian war museum so something that there's been a renewed focus on is um the inclusion of indigenous content within the exhibition program and other research um, agendas at the uh, both well both at the Canadian War Museum in respect of Canada's military history, obviously, and then also at the here at the Canadian Museum of History. So there was a major. Uh, bicentennial commemorative event having to do with the War of 1812 that was in operation from 2012 through 2014 called the Four Wars of 1812, looking at uh, four different perspectives, including the United States perspective, the British perspective, mm. the First Nations perspective, and the um, the French-Canadian perspective. And... Um, 
More recently, we have been looking at the centennial of Canada's involvement during the First World War and uh, right now the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. So whether we're talking about the older historical conflicts like the War of 1812 or the two world wars or the Korean War for that matter, um, we're always concerned to make sure that we address Indigenous content issues as well. How have you seen that change over time since you've been involved? Well, I think most recently, like a lot of the a lot of the work that we're doing here within the museums and heritage field, generally is informed by the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and then also the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action. And there are numerous articles or provisions or calls to action within each of those documents that have either direct or indirect filter down effects for museum work. And, um, you know, as a function of that, there's an ongoing process at the museum right now to essentially review everything that we do through the lens of UNDRIP and TRC compliance. And uh, certainly within the TRC calls to action themselves, there are direct references there to the greater attention that the Canadian historical community, including the, you know, the network of of museums ought to be making to um, previously underrepresented themes like Indigenous contributions to Canada's military heritage. So obviously, as we approach each of these significant anniversary years or sets of years, whether we're talking about the, the bicentennial of the War of 1812 or the centennial of the First World War, or the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War, um, we're, we're telling Indigenous stories within that. What were the implications for families? What was the involvement on the home front? And then, of course, uh, you know, what were what were the experiences of our Indigenous service men and women overseas actually actually like? And uh, you know, there's always been. A, I think there's always been sort of a a base level recognition of significant, you know, to use the term war heroes of people like Francis Pegamagabo during the First World War mm. and Tommy Prince during the Second World War and the Korean War and that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, that's just one aspect of the story. Their indigenous people have served and are serving right now in the Canadian military in every, every rank from private soldier up to brigadier so and into the general officer ranks. So it's, it's something that people aren't generally aware of, but they certainly should be aware of. Well, the other thing that that I don't think many people, uh, maybe you'd have a better idea of this, uh, are are aware of of just how how, uh, 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 freely they they, uh, volunteered to go and fight on on behalf of Canada. Many of the uh, Indigenous communities across the country had a a very, very high percentage of of, uh, people volunteering uh, for the military. Yeah, and that's right. And I think, you know, and even that is, there are a number of different ways you can look at that. And it's uh, certainly when we're talking about the, you know, the, during the era of the two world wars and the Korean War, um, the circumstances of indigenous persons, especially if they were status, Indian registered band members were were unique Mm. 
in comparison to other Canadians, even though they were actively being denied the full rights and benefits of Canadian citizenship at home, they were nevertheless at the very forefront in fulfilling abroad what is arguably the single most onerous and profound obligation of citizenship and donning uniform and bearing arms against the, the country's enemies. But then having said that, you know, we, we have to be cognizant of the fact that Indigenous military service was never undertaken lightly nor out of some naive sense of patriotism to the to the crown the question of whether to support canadian and earlier colonial military efforts was divisive within communities and within families mm. and even amongst those who did volunteer the individual motivations varied very greatly so it's um, you know it's just sort of a it's a just a starting point from which we can launch a much more detailed discussion of the implications of military service for native people in Canada yeah well said uh, do do any of the exhibits or is there information uh, at at the uh, museum that, that that goes into those details further? Um, well, within the space, in some respects, museum exhibits themselves are you know can be limited by the practicalities of you know square footage, sure. and the, you know the the length of the, the the word count within the the paragraphs appearing on the text panels and everything mm-hmm. else like that, but. Uh, certainly there is Indigenous content throughout both the Canadian War Museum and the Canadian Museum of History. And I would indicate, you know, as a matter of fact, you know, we mentioned my father before and some of our some of our relatives that we, we share in common. Um, there's mention made of my father, Russ. He had the misfortune of being, of serving aboard HMCS Iroquois in October of 1952 when she was hit by North Korean and communist Chinese shellfire. And um, there are various artifacts pertaining to that event that are part of the uh, Korean War module at the, at the Canadian War Museum. And there's actually a reference there to our collective great-uncle, James Moses, who mm. was killed flying with the Royal Air Force during the First World War. There are some excerpts of, from his letters home, and he was actually, he was um, dealt with in a much more detailed way in an exhibit called Air War that was up and running a couple of years ago, which had to do with the First World War in the air. And so he was one of 10 or a dozen actual service men who were profiled. Um, There's a a more detailed overview of of his first World War flying career that was part and parcel of that. And um, so too with my maternal grandmother, Edith Anderson Montour, who was served as a a nurse with the American Army during the First World War, and that's uh, sort of a fascinating political story in its own right, because as a young woman, my grandmother, who was born in 1890, as a young woman, she was determined to become a nurse, but unfortunately, under Canada's Indian Act legislation of that era, um, for any Native person who is in receipt of any sort of higher technical education, it was possible that they could arbitrarily um, be enfranchised against their will. I guess the thinking was that if they were in receipt of higher education, they were necessarily assimilated, and therefore there was no need for them to uh, you know, continue on as members of their respective bands on reserve. But anyways, her solution to that was to actually take her nurse's training in the United States, and she was 
living and working as a public health nurse in New York City when the United States entered the First World War in 1917. So she actually volunteered to serve as a nurse with the U.S. Army Nurse Corps of the American Expeditionary Force and uh, wound up spending two years in France from 1917 until 1919. So, But uh, she returned to Canada and to the Six Nations Reserve following the First World War, by which time the previous Indian Act restrictions that I mentioned had been lifted. And so she continued um, living and uh, working at Six Nations. Well, she got married and raised, you know, raised her, her own family, including my, my mother, Helen. And uh, she was living and working as a nurse and midwife at Six Nations right up until the 1960s. So there's, you know, like, a, you know, five or six decades of nursing and midwifery that she, she did at Six Nations. And she passed away in April of eight. Sorry, she passed away in April of 1996, just a few days shy of what would have been her 106th birthday. So, you know, obviously a remarkable career and a remarkable life on a number of levels. Well, uh, thanks for sharing that. What a what a wonderful yeah. story. I appreciate you you doing that, John. Mm-hmm. Um, repatriation um, at the museum it deals with repatriation anywhere in uh, in the world, or is it just within the confines of, of Canada? Well, it is a feature of global museum and heritage work right now. So different, um, you know, different institutions will have different policies and approaches towards repatriation, which are reflective of the National Museum legislation and other cultural heritage legislation that is operative within those various jurisdictions. Um, Here at the Canadian Museum of History, as I say, we've been doing repatriation since the decade of the 1970s. And um, as a matter of fact, we were the, as far as we've been able to determine, we were the first national museum anywhere in the world to undertake the repatriation of a portion of the um, national collections back to the indigenous communities of origin. Um, the policy that we follow right now has been in place since 2001. And um, it, um, you know, it, it continues to, to, to meet the, the needs of the various indigenous con- communities with whom we're in contact. And uh, it meets the, uh, the, the museum's needs as well. And I would indicate too, that repatriation is just one point along a spectrum of access to collections. So when we speak of access to the collections, we're talking about everything from the provision of specialized museology training and internships for Indigenous museology students to um, our regular suite of short and long-term loans to various shared custody agreements and then at, you know up at the other end of the spectrum up to and including the repatriation and return of selected categories of museum materials so yeah it's it's certainly something that is um under a lot of discussion and review right now within the international museums and heritage community and certainly within the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. As I had said previously, there are a number of articles there that have um, direct implications for how heritage work, including how museum operations unfold. Right. And, and uh, John, you mentioned on, uh, on Remembrance Day you, you'll actually be traveling 
Yes, I'll be I'll be attending a conference in. Um, it's actually part of the um, uh, the Fort McDowell um, Native American Reservation happening uh, outside Scottsdale, Arizona, which is a, a suburb of Phoenix. I've never been down to that area of the states before, so I'm quite looking forward to it. Mm. Well, uh, safe travels, and uh, want to thank you for taking the time to join us and, and share the stories about yourself and about uh, about your dad, uh, Russ, uh, and his involvement with the military, and uh, your grandmother uh, Edith as well. Uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful of you to share all these things uh, to to uh, share some uh, and shed some light on the the uh, the contribution that Indigenous people have made to Canada and uh, the military service. Well, Thanks very much. Uh, just before we go, I want to. I want to. <laughs> at the top of the show, I mentioned that uh, when I went to see you at the Canadian Museum some years ago, uh, mm-hmm. you weren't there. But I got a call the next day because some. I said, you know, ha- yeah, have have John get a hold of me. But it wasn't you that actually called me. It was your dad, Russ. And, oh, really? Okay. And, and he and he <laughs> he got me on the phone, and um, you know we were chatting shortly. We did end up meeting briefly, uh, and okay. he was the first person to show me a picture of my grandfather. Oh, and, really? Now, is, is that Nelson? No. Uh, Jess, Jess? Oh, Jess. Jess okay, yeah. yeah. Now, well, Jess, I can actually send you a photograph of Nelson, who mm. was, if Jess was your grandfather, Nelson was my great-grandfather, so um, I guess Nelson would be your great-grandfather as well. But, you know, interesting case in point, and uh, again, showing the the value of museums, I recently came across two photographs of our common ancestor, Nelson Moses, here in the National Ethnographic Archive at the... Uh, <laughs> At the museum, and uh, I'll be happy to send those to you. I'd be happy to receive it. That would be wonderful. And that was John Moses. He's the supervisor of repatriation at the Canadian Museum of History in Ottawa. He was my guest on the show. Don't go away. We'll be right back on A Moment of Truth and Element FM. This is an encore presentation of Moment of Truth with David Moses. All right. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. And in the studio with me, I have Darren Waibenga. He's from the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Uh, he's had a, a long career there doing, uh, you know, he's got a lot of stories, uh, I think, around history. And that's one of the things that uh, we want to talk to him about today is because uh, of Remembrance Day. And we wanted to get some uh, some stories uh, that, that people could relate to on a, a local level, uh, specifically from uh, the First Nations uh, within the, the, the territory of the Mississaugas. And so uh, Darren is here to talk with us a little bit about sharing some of that history and some of that knowledge uh, that, uh, that the First Nation, the Mississaugas, particularly took part in with the... Uh, with the, the wars uh, within within Canada and uh, the world wars, right? We we have a long history of military involvement at uh, New Credit, uh, like from the War of eighteen twelve up mm. until a modern peacekeeping uh, modern peacekeeping uh, mission. So we're very proud of our, our of our veterans and the uh, efforts that they put forth through the years. Uh, and uh, so it's always wonderful when we get to hear stories about them and. Uh, and to learn about some of the achievements of our people. So, what uh, what comes to mind when you think of uh, of, of what the Mississaugas, uh, as you say, the War of eighteen twelve? But as we remember, uh, as we're coming up to Remembrance Day, right. we're particularly thinking of the First and Second World War. I think for the First World War, and I think this is so typical of 
places throughout Canada is when you send your brightest and your best off to fight. And I think they were going to really do great things for the First Nation. And, of course, the bad thing about war, people get killed. And when your best and brightest get killed, it affects the nation in a, I think, in a very profound way. I'm thinking of uh, one of our band members from the First World War. Uh, his name is Cameron Brandt, Cameron Daniel Brandt. He, he's kind of a, got an interesting pedigree. His uh, great-great-grandfather was Chief Joseph Brandt from the Six Nations Reserve. But his particular ba- branch of the Brandt family, uh, Cameron's, lived at New Credit. Uh, and for quite a number of years, and he went attended school at New Credit. He went to the New Credit Methodist Church. So really, even though he was for a long time a member of the Six Nations, he lived over at New Credit with with our folks. In any case, what we know about Cameron as a boy, he loved all things military. You know how little mm. boys like to play soldier, and they <laughs> read about war, and I imagine he had plenty of glorious dreams somewhere in his mind as most little boys do but he he was really tremendously interested in the military he was part of the militia the Haldeman rifles at uh, one time he went off to the uh, military college in uh, london ontario for a short time to train uh so very very good at what he did and uh, like i said one of our brightest ones uh, I said before he went to school at uh, the New Credit School at the time, and he even went off to Hagersville Secondary School, which is almost unheard of for a First Nations person from mm. at least New Credit to go off and get a secondary school education and actually finished up. Anyway, he's living at New Credit, and uh, he he decides that uh, he's going to move to Hamilton of all places, because there's not much going on at New Credit for a young, ambitious man. And uh, so he goes to Hamilton and becomes a sheet metal worker. Hmm. Not a bad trade in those days. Probably not a bad trade these days either, for that <laughs> matter. But in any case, he goes on becomes be, to become a sheet metal worker, and uh, he wants to move to Hamilton. And so one of the things, in order to move to Hamilton... He decides he wants to drop his Indian status off, become enfranchised, mm. because then he gets a, a little nest egg to start a new life with elsewhere. Mm. Mm. So he would take that nest egg, go to Hamilton, and start a whole new life. But war breaks out, and he joins up immediately. No hesitation. He joins up uh, right away, and by 1915, he's over in uh, in Belgium, mm. and he's he's considered an excellent leader. He's he becomes a lieutenant, so well regarded by his men by all accounts. He he's at the second Battle of Ypres. That's a, a first uh, major battle Canadians are involved in, and there's poison gas involved, and so his men see the poison gas coming across the field at them. They hold their ground, but in a counterattack, Cameron Brandt is killed. Mm. I've heard stories, some say by a burst of machine gun fire, I've heard other by an artillery shell. doesn't matter, the poor man was uh, was killed. And like I said, one of the best and brightest we had. And uh, to me, what makes it interesting, well, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Uh, What makes it interesting to me is... uh, 
his wife, when she found out the news, she went down to the post office. She was living in Hamilton at this time. She was at the post, uh, sending some letters off in the post to send to Cameron. She, go down, she goes down to the corner to uh, post these things. She comes back, and there's a telegram waiting for her that says, your husband has just died. Mm. She was... She was devastated, of course, by it. She was very fortunate. She was living with her uh, near with her sister-in-law at the time. It could take some comfort in that. But such a tragic, a uh, very good young man. There was high hopes for him, uh, and he's actually the second First Nations warrior killed during World War One. But the interesting thing about him, the people of Brantford claim him as <laughs> he's the first man from Brant County killed. Uh, the people of New Credit claim him for obvious reasons that he lived among us for so long and the six nations claim him as well and of course the city of hamilton claims him so he's well he represents a lot of communities mm. uh, which which makes it interesting and so now if we jump forward to i guess it's 2014 where we're commemorating the 100th year anniversary of world war 1 mm. i'm working at my office at the library in at new credit and I get a phone call from uh, the band office, of all things. Could you come over here? Somebody says they have medals from World War One. I. I thought, oh, great, because war medals, World War One, mm-hmm. new credit. We don't have a lot of new credit from our veterans. And so I walk across the parking lot, and I meet the man. Uh, he didn't give me his name. He didn't want to. But I will tell you this. He was a contractor. He was working in a house in Selkirk, Ontario, ripping apart the house. And he reached behind the mantle and found four war medals. And they belonged to Cameron Brandt. Wow. For some reason, they were hidden in the mantle. <laughs> and as near as I can figure out, Cameron Brandt Mary was married before he was killed, a woman by the name of uh, Flossie uh, Phillips. And she remarried, became Flossie Smith, and apparently went to live in Selkirk, mm. and for some reason in that house, and for some reason, put those medals where they were found, and so there we are, a hundred years after the fact, actually getting to look at them. Uh, and so right now they're in the collection of the of the New Credit Public Library, and they're off and displayed in Toronto somewhere. So that was interesting. We got the medals out of nowhere. No sooner had that happened, I was at the library again working. And I get a phone call from a bookseller in Picton, Ontario. If you know Picton, is out near mm. Belleville area. Yeah. And she was selling books at a rummage sale. And she found this, well, put it this way. She says to me, would you like a book by Cameron Brandt? <laughs> and I'm thinking, Cameron Brandt, he didn't write any books. So what are you, <laughs> what are you doing? She tells me she found a book with his name in it. Where his his company was, where he where he was uh, stationed, and so on, and it has his name in it. And I thought, would you? She says, would you like to have it? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. And I waited about two weeks, and it arrived. And so I'm opening up the book, and I'm thinking, I really got to see if this is true. Mm. And sure enough, I look and open up the book cover, and there's his name signed by his own hand. I could tell because I looked at the attestation papers he signed up in the war with. Mm. I thought, oh, yes, this is a Cameron Brandt's book. The book was uh, Songs of a Sourdough by Robert Service. Hmm. And Robert Service has a lot of patriotic little 
little poems in there. And, uh, and so it kind of tickles me to think that here's, here's a First Nations war in the trenches in Belgium. What's he doing in his spare time? He's reading the poetry of Robert, uh, Robert Service. Not exactly what you expect from a, 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 a supposedly fierce First Nations warrior out mm. to kill the enemy. <laughs> he's reading poetry in his spare time. We don't know how it got back here. Mm. Uh, it arrived, we know. We're very grateful to have it. And you kind of get a thrill when you hold it. Nowadays, oh, Cameron Brandt was holding this just before mm. he was killed. Uh, it's kind of a thrill to have those two articles in, the, uh, in our collection. Wow, that's pretty fascinating. What a great story as well. I thought so. I thought so. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, to think uh, uh, that his – his it still continues. His story continues with these things still arriving. It's still there. We have very little tangible from from that war at all. We mm-hmm. have pictures of Cameron Brandt and we have a p- few pictures of the other men at the time, but nothing hands-on that we can actually hold and say this was that, you know, over – in France or Belgium, wherever mm. our guys were. And this is something very, very tangible. And uh, maybe it means more because he was killed. Mm. He lost his life, and it. it probably might not have been as important for a survivor that uh, mm. brought it back. But uh, he's one of our veterans. Four of our veterans were killed in the First, uh, in the first World War. Mm. Uh, just wanted to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM and this is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest in the studio with me is Darren Wybenga. He is with the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. And, uh, Darren, we didn't say this off the top of the show, yeah. but uh, what is your actual position with the Mississaugas? What do you do there? Oh, I wear a few hats, actually. Okay. I'm uh, the librarian for, mm. the, uh, for the First Nation, so that's one job. And the other job, uh, I'm the traditional knowledge and land use coordinator for the Department of Consultation and Accommodation, which do a, quite a few treaty and history-related mm. stuff as well. So it's kind of a nice, happy mix for me. Years ago, I used to teach history, so now it's mm. nice to just be actually kind of kind of living the dream, so to speak, <laughs> if you want to call it that. <laughs> uh, that's two. What are the other two hats you wear? I think you said there was four, didn't you? Oh, I've been the archivist at okay. one point in yeah. time as well. I think maybe that – I hope that's it. Okay. Well, I hope that's it. That's enough. That's. I think that's it keeps enough. me busy. It keeps me it busy. Um, so, and how long have you been doing that? I've been with the First Nation one way or another for about the past eight years. Mm. Now, um, you have other stories that you can... Uh, oh, uh, let's come see. On? I'm thinking about now, mainly because our last veteran from World War II just died, uh, I guess it would be just before Remembrance Day last year. Mm. His name was uh, Bill, uh, we call him Bill Tobico. His real name is William, the mm. long form, of course. And he was, I think, 94 years old when he died. And just before he died, his relatives uh, decided to put him on tape to tell his life story. Mm. And part of that was telling stories about the war. And the story that uh, struck me the most, anyway, was uh, a story about uh, a time in, in Belgium. He enlisted Belgium again. in Belgium. Okay. Belgium again. <laughs> uh, it was 1943 enlisted, and uh, I believe this story took place in 1944. Uh, he was an artilleryman, and uh, I wish I knew a little bit more about this story, but they had stopped on a very, very cold winter night for whatever reason, and they were very cold, and 
Bill and his fellows found an abandoned, uh, he described it as a shed later, he described it as a house, but it was abandoned in any case. Bitterly cold night and was falling apart. But they needed a place to sleep, so mm. good place to sleep. So they ripped some of the old boards off the house and start a fire in one of their in one of their ammunition boxes. If you ever see those ammunition boxes, they're big metal boxes. An empty one, I'm assuming. And, oh, oh, thank goodness for that, yes. It would not have come to a happy ending, I think, otherwise. So he has this big ammunition box, and they filled it with wood, and they're burning wood, and uh, they're going to have to go to bed. So what they decide to do is heat rocks mm. in the fireplace, mm. in, in that makeshift fireplace. Mm. Heat the rocks up, and then when they go into their sleeping bags, they put the rocks down at the bottom of the sleeping bag, so at least their feet will be reasonably warm. Mm. And they did quite well. They survived the night. They didn't freeze, which which is wonderful for them. But uh, that next morning, as they moved out, about four or 500 yards away, he said, they found another group of Canadians that were not so lucky. They were trying to stay warm in their vehicle, and uh, it didn't work well because they were all found frozen to death the next, uh, and within a stone's throw of where he mm. was relatively warm the night before. Uh, but it just, you know, it's not a story of shooting or exactly. or killing in the conventional sense of warfare, but it's just the elements in this yeah. case. Uh, that these men had to deal with, and in this case, it was fatal for those uh, for those Canadian soldiers. And I guess that's something that uh, people we well, we tend to forget that that uh, the soldiers have more than just uh, the elements of of a battle to contend with. They do have the elements to contend with in terms of, uh, like you said, cold, heat, uh, wet, damp, uh, all of those things that they have to try and and. Uh, uh, battle against as well to to I suppose alive. like I'm I'm sure they were not terrified of dying from the enemy that mm. night but I'm sure just the cold and the inability to keep very warm at all had to be had to be terrifying in its own sense you know it's interesting you say that cuz you think back uh, there's some there's some uh, good uh, uh, war films that you watch when when the, the the soldiers they get their feet wet they're damp in their boots their their feet get infected they they're swollen they get all kinds of uh, lesions on them right. all kinds of things right oh it, it it's amazing what they went through that's something i can't imagine doing but here they were Purposeful, you know, in a pur- purposeful way, going out there to fight the enemy, and the, and uh, well, VE Day came in Europe, of course. The fight stops in Europe, and Bill Tobico decides he wants to fight the Japanese yet, and he volunteers mm. to go on to fight the Japanese. But first, they're sending him home to Canada. He gets home to Canada, and uh, the Japanese surrender by the time mm. he's getting ready to go to fight them mm. it was uh, and he could almost hear the disappointment in his voice that he was mm. going to miss this mm. uh, this uh, this undertaking I, I kind of wonder but maybe that was a sense of duty talking too mm. we dealt with one one enemy now we have to deal with the other one mm. uh, no doubt a very very brave man as far as I'm concerned and the fact that we have him on tape talking about yeah. this uh, it's another thing at New Credit we don't have a lot of stories about our veterans. 
and so we're very fortunate to have to have that one. So, do you did the family uh, share that with you as the with the community? Or? Well, we were working on another project, and uh, it was a calendar actually that we work on a community calendar for our elders. Mm. You know, and we'd feature one elder a month and write a bit of a story. And so somebody suggested, well, Bill Tobicko, he was, I think, 93 at the time we approached him for the calendar. Mm. And so they taped all this information, and then uh, we took little bits and pieces of it and wove it together for a page in the calendar, and that was it. So it was really quite good, and sadly, a year later mm. after that taping or so, mm. he, he passed on. Uh, I'm wondering if you, if you don't mind sharing, as it is uh, Remembrance Day, and, and uh, you know, in the Mississaugas, uh, their memorial, you have a great, a great oh, space right, right. Uh, for the veterans uh, to be remembered. Uh, it's something that, uh, that you guys did a number of years ago, and, uh, and it's, I think, a, a very nice uh, area that you've created and it, a beautiful way of— It's different. It's yeah. certainly— the, a very different memorial. I've never seen anything like it. About 2008, my understanding is that memorial mm. uh, happened. It's not the usual stone uh, cenotaph, I guess is the mm. term that we call them nowadays, mm -hmm. where you just list a bunch of veterans' names, or well, the veterans that actu actually died in the conflict. Our monument is in a grove of Carolinian forest. It's uh, it's in the shape of a burial mound. It's, actu it's an actual dirt mound mm -hmm. with plants on the mound. Uh, it's got uh, four large slabs of concrete, or not concrete, pardon me, marble, mm -hmm. each one in, one inscribed with a poem by our current chief, Stacy mm -hmm. LaForme, a mm -hmm. Remembrance Day poem. And the other slabs all have uh, the names of the warriors that we know of mm -hmm. uh, that have served in one capacity or the other. New Credit's kind of unique in the sense that uh, we don't list just the people that lost their lives. We list all the veterans that we know of mm. that have fought or mm. just been in the military. Mm -hmm. So we have people from the War of 1812 all the way up to modern-day peacekeepers, and we're always on the lookout for other veterans that we can find out. And from time to time, we hear of another one, and another name goes on the mm. uh, on the slab. So that's very unique, that aspect of it, that everybody gets their name on that has served in the military. We love that burial mound. We have... Uh, we also have around uh, the mound uh, three, uh, what would I call them, pillars with uh, flames yeah. on top. I mm -hmm. guess marble flames yeah. on top yeah. is the best way to describe them, to represent the three fires confederacy that mm. uh, we belong to with the Adawas, the Potawatomis, and the, and the Ojibwe's. So that's in there. So it's, a very, it's in a very nice, peaceful place. You can actually sit and reflect if you want to because I've – Done it many a time during my coffee breaks. You'd leave the <laughs> library and go sit out there and look at the veterans' uh, mm. memorial. And uh, yeah, a nice peaceful location. And like I said, very unique, very unique to us. Yeah, and and those uh, those slabs you're talking about, uh, they're not small. They're <laughs> oh my goodness! I, yeah, uh, from what I understand, they came all the way from Italy. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'm kind of amazed that they come all the way from Italy, but I guess that's a type of stone they re needed and mm. required. And uh, yeah, it, uh, it was a long search to come to that memorial. Yeah. My understanding is they're about what five feet, six feet tall. Yeah, I would say about five or six it's feet hard to long. Tell they're angled. They're right? angled. Yeah, 
And they're thick, too. Yeah, they're not they just one or two inches. Like, <laughs> I, I would imagine they're close to a foot, yeah. uh, foot deep. Mm-hmm. But at least the names are in there, and they're going to be in there forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like I said, we constantly try and add names to those things. That, uh, I think maybe last year was the first time in a while we haven't added a name. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, it, you know, we, it's, we always encourage people to tell us, who do you know that's serving in the military from mm. the First Nations? So mm. ideally, ideal, in an ideal world, you're not going to add any more names. Yeah. That's what, yeah, that's right. That would be great. Mm-hmm. But I think we all know the way the world is. That's not going to happen anytime mm-hmm. soon for those people that haven't been able to make it out or or could you know get to the to the mississaugas memorial service right. that you have could you describe briefly what happens uh, in many cases it's like a typical service uh in any small community throughout uh, the country i think one of the things that we do again it is well maybe i don't know about unique because i think maybe other first nations do this is the inclusion of honor songs mm. Also, we have uh, prayers to the Creator mm. in the in the Ojibwe language. Mm. Uh, uh, we often prayed the uh, the uh, the Eagle Staff, and we also invite other First Nations mm. veterans there. And I think we also read all the names of those veterans too, mm. Mm. all those names of those veterans that have served in one way or the other. Mm. And we encourage people to come and give them a handshake at the end of the mm. service and thank them f- mm. for what they've done for the country. Mm. So it's it, it's not terribly long, though I hate to say it. it's getting colder sometimes, and uh, we've suffered through the through the weather. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of sad because uh, as ve- time goes on, of course, we're going to lose people that have been in the military. And like I said, we lost our our last uh, veteran of the World War II. Yeah. And I think now, if I remember from last year's uh, service, we had basically veterans that were involved in peacekeeping, and that was Mm. it. Mm. Uh, But still good to honor those folks, which is as vital as, uh, as the warriors of old. Yeah, for sure. Anything else comes comes to mind uh, in terms of this uh, for the Remembrance Day special we have? Uh, no, I just constantly encourage people to remember these veterans and uh, think of what they've done for the country, think of what they've done for the First Nations. First Nation, and I'm always brought to mind, at least for uh, First Nations veterans, is uh, I always want to be, be nice about this because sometimes it's a little bit hard because you wonder, why were we fighting when we didn't have the same rights as mm. other Canadians? Mm. That's always a bit of uh, hard for me to understand sometimes mm. uh, because, of course, we didn't get to vote. We we couldn't do certain things, and we're still fighting for rights today, so mm. maybe uh, the, the spirit of the warrior still has to go on even to this very day. But I suppose the big thing is I hope our young people keep remembering and are encouraged to remember mm. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because, of course, we know that uh, many of the indigenous uh, people and communities uh, were some of those. Some of those communities were had the highest enlistment. Oh, right for across sure. the country. Uh, I think of New Credit in World War One. We had a population. I think what was it, two hundred and eighty-two of us, and we sent. Uh, I think it was thirty-six off to fight. Mm. Which mm. is when you think that's most. Uh, 
That's 10% of your population. Mm. Mm-hmm. And we were very fortunate that uh, all but four came back. Mm. You know, when you think about the slaughterhouse that was World War mm. One, you're amazed anybody comes back from mm. that sort of thing. And yep. and the same with World War Two. We sent, our population was a little bigger, but we still sent, I think, 32, 33 people off to fight. Mm. So still uh, an outstanding contribution. Right. Darren, uh, I want to say... Uh, Miigwech to you for, for sharing with us today uh, on, on Remembrance Day and, and telling us those stories about uh, the New Credit community or the Misakis as of the credit, as they're now called. <laughs> as we're now called, yes. <laughs> and, name change. Yeah, and uh, I, great. It's really great to hear those, and, and I'm glad you were able to uh, bring that forward and share them with us. So, Chimiigwech uh, for being on the show and sharing that with us. Miigwech for having me. Thank that, you. It's our pleasure. And that's the end of our show today here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Thank you for listening to our Remembrance Day special, and uh, stay tuned for next show. Until then, nyo and miigwech and onigiha. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.